You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. My favorite, it's called the superscription. It's like the introduction to the psalm. This has my favorite in all of the psalms. Here it is. To the choir master, according to Shushan Edith, a mitkam of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. It's the longest one in all the Psalms. Uh, I did not ask Marcy to read that, probably for obvious reasons there. There's a handful of words that are a little tricky to say. I'm not even sure I said them right. I just said them confidently, and no one knows any better. Um, But I think I'm pretty close there anyway. Um, But this Psalm, very clearly, I mean, he goes into a lot of detail to try and say there's a context behind why this Psalm is written. So what is the context of this Psalm? Well, David is uh, king over Israel. He's captured Jerusalem from the people there, the Jebusites. Uh, He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Zion. And then he is having this time of lamenting and saying, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And God says, uh, you don't need to build me a house. Uh, Your son Solomon is going to do that, or that will happen in the future. Um, However, he does say something interesting. He sort of flips it. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's called the Davidic Covenant. It's a covenant God made with David that David would not build God a house, but there's a play on words, and he says, I will build, God says, I will build you, David, into a house. And the word that is, uh, is translated house sometimes is also kind of the word, it's used of the word dynasty as well. He's going to give David this Davidic dynasty that's going to follow after him. He's going to establish David and his sons on the throne of Israel. So God is saying, I will build you a house, the house of David that will come after him. Well, all that starts by him defeating his enemies, and that's what this whole, this whole introduction to the psalm was about. The context is 2 Samuel 8, 1 Chronicles 18. It tells this story. It's a couple different times in the Bible. And, um, <clears throat> and if you read the, the scriptures on this, um, you've, got, you've got David just going and defeating a ton of people, tons of success. So, so we got a map of Israel, which is hard to put on here because Israel goes like this and the screens go like this, but you can kind of see, um, that, don't worry about the cities in there, I grabbed the best one I could. Here's, here's what um, the context of this is, 2 Samuel 8, 1 Chronicles 18, just listen to, listen to the, um, the, the account of what happened. That's the context for this psalm. All that is, all that's David has just ascended to the throne. All that day, God's going to build him a house. Then he um, defeats the Philistines to the west, conquers their chief, uh, chief city of Gath. He conquers them. He uh, conquers Moab east of the Dead Sea. And when he conquers them, he laid them in two lines. He killed half of them, and the other half of them he made um, serve his kingdom. There was a, a king of a place called Zobah, which is up in the north near a place called Aram. That was in the superscription we read today. Um, he was going to the Euphrates River to just resupply and get some water and stuff, and David heard about it and went and took him out. They attacked him. He won. David took 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, destroyed all the chariots that they had except enough to have 100 uh, horses so that they could have their own chariots. There were Syrian soldiers from Damascus, so up in the northeast, Um, and David went and he conquered them, and they came and they brought tribute to him, and it says in 2 Samuel 8, 6, it says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 
And then the next part of it, he got uh, shields of gold and bronze. The people from the north started coming and just bringing tribute to him um, after he defeated them. Others, he hasn't even defeated them yet, but they did basically a pre-war surrender and they brought tribute to David to say, please don't attack us. And so they brought gold and silver and all these different things to David to pay tribute to him. Now, you would think after all those battles that David had, you might think, okay, they've got to be weakened a little bit. They're going to have to stop and catch their breath. Man, all these other nations were still going, they're taking out everybody they could take out us to. Let's go pre-surrender to them. And they would just go and they would just bring tribute to them. They're buying his favor. They're still scared of David and the armies of Israel. So if you're keeping score at home here, let me just give you a quick hit. Edom is who they defeated, which is down in the south. It's south of the Dead Sea. Moab, which is east, east of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites are, the east, are east of the Jordan, so up a little bit north. The Philistines are to the west. Amalek, Amalek it says, uh, that he defeated them as well. They're down to the south. And Zobah and Syria and all those places are all up to the north. He made them David's servants. He leaves garrisons of soldiers there to ensure that they'll be obedient to him. And then they're coming down kind of the the bottom half underneath the the Dead Sea, and it's called the Valley of Salt, and they strike down thousands of Edomites, and again it says in 2 Samuel, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. There is nothing negative that is recorded in these accounts. It is victory, 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 victory. He, basically, everyone. David is having victory over them. So if you take and you just look at a map of Israel again, if you look at just a regular map of Israel, I went through and just to help out, I tried coloring in blue all the places where David was having victory. There you go. Everywhere, the north, the south, the east, the west, the the northeast, the southeast, the southwest, every place in Jerusalem, David is having victory, victory, victory. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. There's no hardships list, listed. He has hardly any difficulty in doing it. It is just, if you read those two accounts, it is just an account of the glorious victory of God's army just marching into battle to be victorious. In fact, this campaign is the thing that actually um, laid the groundwork so that, they, that Solomon one day, the, the house of God, the, the dynasty of David, um, this laid the groundwork for the temple to be built by David's son Solomon. And so we're in a series right now called Heartaches and Hallelujahs. And if David writes a psalm in that context, what do you think the nature of this psalm would be on the spectrum? Look at what it says. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry, oh restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Isn't that interesting? It's not what you'd expect. When you read the only other two accounts in the Bible of, uh, of, of this context, you read it and go, man, David is the man. They are having victory, 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 victory. He is defeating everybody. Everybody's coming to him and paying tribute. And then when David takes a moment to be very personal and write something that can be sung later for years to come, it's like David wants his people to understand the whole story. 
This is a very personal psalm, perhaps even after a defeat in battle that he had that's just not recorded in those other two things that I mentioned to you. And this, this says, if you remember, it says it's for instruction. And I think one of the things he's trying to instruct is that what you see isn't always the whole story. What you see isn't always the whole story. You might see the story, the account from the other two books, and you might just see, wow, look at all that victory after victory after victory after victory. And he's, he's paving the way to build the temple and build a house of God on earth, to, to build this temple for God, for Solomon, for the Davidic house to continue And then here's David saying, God, you've rejected us. You've broken our defenses, showing the lament that happens in the midst of defeat. Now, if I was David, I might look at the other two accounts and just go, oh, that's good. Let's just leave it at that. Because, man, he's the king. So, like, this losing in in battle, like, there's, um, there's, there's pain is what he's saying. And he's, he's bringing out the pain that comes from losing in battle. There's loss. There's confusion, you see, as you start reading this. I think there's probably embarrassment on the part of David. A nice plan, king. That worked out real well. We lost a battle again today. I think he's probably maybe got some embarrassment. And, and listen, we know wars do not have small consequences associated with them. They're big ones. And David is the one who's the king who's leading it. And he is taking the time to say, it's not just all these roses about victory, 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 victory. We're marching into battle. People are dying. Lives are being changed forever. We are, we are losing. We are wrestling with, where is God in this? Like, look at this. Oh God, you have rejected us. Broken our defenses. It feels like a, he's going, even in the midst of this, it feels like a rejection by God because we've turned from him at times. And the defenses are down, broken our defenses, meaning there's no guarantee that things don't just get worse and worse and worse. And then the relationship is hurt. You've been angry, oh, restore us. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. Do you know the, um, the times that it talks about like the earth shaking, like an earthquake is sometimes just God doing it, but also it's associated with God's army that is marching into battle and they come and they're so powerful and they've got the power of the Lord, the earth trembles before them. And now he says, we're marching into battle and the bad guys are the ones that are making the earth shake. You have made your people see hard things. He's saying this has been difficult. We can't unsee some of the tragedies that we've witnessed in war. He says, you've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. And you can see there's a a double meaning here. There's um, um, wine to drink. When God gives something to drink, it's usually his, sometimes his wrath, his judgment, his anger on a people. And so David here is writing and he's saying, it's like you're angry at us. And then it says wine to make us stagger. You can see the double meaning. If you you drink too much wine, you would just physically stagger. But he's also saying your judgment that you're pouring out on us is too much for us to bear. And we're going into battle and there's no way we can stand strong against these armies. It's fascinating to me that you see all the good stuff in those two books and then here you just feel the anguish. You feel the helplessness that David feels. Because what you see isn't necessarily the whole story. I don't know why this came to mind for me, but it did. Um, when I was growing up, we used to do um, bring your kid to work day. I don't know if anybody's 
ever, uh, ever, ever done that, either with a parent or if you've had kids and you, you do that with them or have done that with them. And um, my mom, it was funny, I, I, the only thing I remember really, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and so she said, you know, bring kid to work day is great because basically um, you get to go see dad's work and then dad gets to see my work all day because the kids are there now with him all day. So we would be there with him and he would, I remember the first time I walked into his office and he was, he was pretty high up at a, he worked at Mary Kay, he worked at Quaker Oats, some pretty, some pretty big companies back in the day, and I thought, this is gonna be great. I mean, as a kid, I had no idea. I just saw all the, like he would bring home a paycheck and we'd get to do fun things as a result, and he talked about liking his job and things like that. And I remember the first day I walked in, I think like as a kid, I expected him to just, be, there was like roller coasters at the office or like just fun things, and he was just, oh, this is the greatest place. And I remember just like walking in and looking, and even as a kid, just going, this is boring. Like my dad was like, I got you, you know, colored markers. You can color on the board, which lasted for 20 minutes, you know, and then it was like, what do we do for the next seven hours we've got together? But it was, it was like, I remember just sitting there thinking, it's just gonna, you party every day, dad, and now I'm gonna be here and I'm just gonna get to party. This is gonna be great. And all of a sudden I got there and even as a kid, I don't know how sophisticated my thinking was, probably not super sophisticated, but I remember just thinking like, oh, this isn't just like a big party that my dad comes to day in, day out. You know, I've been thinking about, um, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about this lately, like with my own kids, that they, they get to see, like they'll watch me preach or something, they'll see the fruit of the work that I put in, but they don't really see the work. Like I wonder if my kids think that I just sort of stand up and just go, all right, Psalm 59, oh, Psalm 60, uh, Psalm 60. Right, well, that's fine, we'll do that. Turn to Psalm 60 and I'm just gonna wing it for 20 minutes or so and we'll just talk about it. And like, I wonder if they actually know that or if they actually know like, no, no, there's behind the scenes, there, there's work that goes into this. And a lot of times we, just, we, we see the produce, but we don't really see the production. And I think about even for the next generation to go, to go do, do you see just the fruit of it? Someone brings home a paycheck, but do you really know the work that goes into it? I think young people will never fully understand until their moms themselves what a mom does with a child. Um, and so I'm, that came to mind when I'm thinking what, what you see is not the whole story. I see the, as a kid, I remember I saw the fruit of it, but I didn't see how that was made. Now, one of my fears is, the way this plays out is I fear, um, you know, conversations with people that don't, that don't are, like young people that become young adults that aren't brought into that process, and then all of a sudden you start going, um, wow, my work is not as fun. I thought it was going to be more fun. Wow, you have, to, you have to work for somebody that you don't really like all the time? <sighs> my gosh. You have, to, you have to do things that you don't really want to do? And then when you do those things and you do it well, people basically walk by and might give you a, hey, good job, and then move on. People don't stop and tell me how wonderful I am and thank me. Like, I think probably, you know, if, if you just think it's like someone goes to a party all day and you don't really get to see what's behind the scenes, it might just seem that way. They're like, oh, this is easy and it's all great and it's all fun and you like what you do and so every aspect of it is great. And so we're sometimes giving an impression, but what you see is not the whole story. There's a lot of work that goes into it as well. I think about um, what you see is not the whole story. If you think about the people that are held up in society that um, young people probably especially, but a lot of people just idolize. Oh, look at this 
Hollywood couple and look how, look how beautiful they are and look how, look how happy they are and, and, um, and oh, they're so sweet and they, they're, they're, you, know, you see them smiling and they're on the red carpets together and this is gonna last forever. And then, and then um, we also know though that as great as that looks on the outside, probably a little bit later, years, whatever it is later, there's gonna be a statement released by their people that talk about why they're no longer married. Um, <clears throat> this is the, the people that we exalt and go, wow, look at them, are the very same people that stand-up comedians will get up and take shots at because it works. Because what you see isn't the whole story. I've, been, I've noticed lately, um, <clears throat> I say lately, I guess I've been reflecting back a little bit that um, some people that have, and you probably know people, some people that have some of the nicest things you assume they're the wealthiest. No. Sometimes. But sometimes they're not wealthy because they use all their money to buy all the things to give the impression that they are. And then you really get to know them and they're carrying this crippling debt because, but they've put this thing out there that demonstrates something else. What you see is not the whole story. I really do have the greatest of admiration for those that are able to be open and transparent and honest. To those that are, are, are not wanting to say, I'm gonna live a separate life on the inside and then the outside, I'm gonna put up this facade. I have the greatest of respect for people who will just, just come by and sit in my office or sit with one of our pastors and just have a conversation about real life and really what's going on. Like, I just wanna jump up and hug them and say, good for you that you're actually willing to just say, I don't really tell people this, but I could sort of use some guidance here. Good for you. I have the greatest of respect for people if they get to a point and go, I'm gonna go to a counselor. They're professionals that are good at like asking questions and helping you through things. I have the greatest of respect for those people. I have the greatest of respect for people that go to AA, that go and say, I want to get out of this, I could use some help, and I'm gonna sit there and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bear my soul to these people because they take that second A very seriously that they will bear their soul. There's something liberating and freeing about it, and I may just say, I think it's noble to be able to say, this is who I am. Amen. To not have to have this out here, and then this is really who you are in here. What you see isn't always the whole story. And I, I don't think we're gonna be able to correct this in the entire world, but we can be more like this in the church. We can be more open, we can be more honest, we can be more um, transparent. I do want to ask, what about you and how are you doing with this? Are you hiding at all? Maybe not all your life, but is there a slice that you go, oh, that's the ugly part of me that I don't want anybody to know? Are you trying to win this affirmation from the world, proving something out there as though it's going to fulfill you? I'm just going to tell you it won't. It is a beautiful thing when you can learn to be a consistent person inside and out. And it's difficult to know who to go to. I mentioned some different resources there, but um, what David does, I'll show you next, is um, if this is you, you can run to the person who loves you regardless. There's a difference between being overly transparent, I get it, like just you meet somebody nice to meet you and you go, how are you? And just passing in the hallway and they go, let me tell you. And they just like, you know, in front of everybody and you're like, oh, I was just being courteous, we can talk later, you know. Like I'm not, I'm not advocating for that kind of thing, but the hiding is tiring. 
Having to live a life in secret is just so exhausting. And so we have someone that we can go to the same way that David does. And look at what he says. You've set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. I love this. This is a beautiful image. So this is what they would do in battle. And you've probably seen old movies where they have this. You got a a big banner, like a flag over here, and then you got the flag over here. And you could watch and you could look and you could see, um, well, we're kind of losing out here, but I look back and my banner is still intact. The king is still standing. He is still saying, fight. And there's a heavily guarded place where the king and others would be. And in, in, in a pinch, if you needed to, you could run back and you could be safe. And so imagine being out on the field of battle and just wondering and going, oh man, I am just down and I'm watching the slaughter and this is just awful and turning around and just seeing the banner is still waving. That's the image that David gives is even in the midst of battle, God is still there. There's a great scene from a movie. If you've seen um, uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, and um, it's Revolutionary War, and the British are, uh, there's a battle going on, and cannonballs are flying and things like that, and the Americans realize that they are outnumbered, that they're outgunned, and so um, they all start retreating, and um, of course, it's a very dramatic Mel Gibson movie, but they all start retreating, and the guy is carrying the American flag, and he's, he's running back like this, and cannonballs are going off and things like that. And as they're running back, Mel Gibson is the one that stands up, and all the other Americans are running this way, and the British are over there, and, he's, and he just starts screaming. He just starts saying, no retreat, no retreat, and nobody's paying attention to him until he runs by and the guy who's running like this with the flag, Mel Gibson grabs it from him and then starts running and just starts waving the flag and just starts crying, no retreat, no retreat. And as soon as he raised that banner, as soon as he raised that flag, people turned and looked and said, let's go fight. And they all turn and then we win. That's the punchline of the whole thing too. (laughs) They run under the banner that he Brings And this is the image that you have here is him looking and going, the banner of God, that is the good, right, safe place that we rally around and that we run to. In our brokenness, in our insecurities, that's where we go. Go to the one who knows you. Go to the one who loves you. There's a spectrum of complete utter phonies, and you've probably met some in your life as well, And then there's some who are maybe just a little too transparent with everything they talk about. And there's all sorts of things in between. And it might be nice just to think of where are you on that? Is it, you know, this part of my life, I'm pretty darn open book, but ooh, I've got some, I've got some things. I won't let the most intimate people in my life into that part of my heart. The beautiful thing here is we have a God that we can run to and we can recoup under his banner. And he is not impressed by your works and by my works, by how great we are, by how good we are, or how bad we are. He loves you. Let me just share the love of God. How much does he love us? 
Well, let me tell you the rest of the story. I started out by saying that uh, God was gonna build David this dynasty and this Davidic covenant, this house of David. And um, if you know your history, you would say God is not very good at building this eternal uh, line of David because he was on the throne in Israel and lasted about 400 years, like with his sons, maximum, and then not a son of David sitting on the throne of Israel. I thought God was going to make this covenant with them forever. And it's because it was just such small thinking that when you hear that, when David heard that, he might have been thinking, when God said there's gonna be a descendant of yours on the throne forever, I'm gonna build you a house, it might be small thinking to think that means that Jerusalem's always going to stand, that there's always going to be a son of David for for all time from this day forward, and then we look and go, God's not good at keeping his promises because it's not happening. Well, God had something much bigger in mind, that it wasn't just an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. Matthew 1.1, our New Testament opens up this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the one in the line of David that God promised is going to sit on a throne forever. It is the kingdom that is unshakable and it is the kingdom that all of us are invited to be a part of. But there's more. Luke chapter two, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The angels said to the shepherds, sorry, I fast forwarded to the shepherds. The angels said to the shepherds, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus Christ is the one that is in the line of David that will sit on a throne forever. And he has built a kingdom that no matter what kingdom rises and falls, he is on the throne And his love for us is so great that he came to earth to demonstrate that. Not a perfect analogy, but we actually went last night to a, um, I took my son to a minor league baseball game, the the, the NOCO Owls, the North Colorado Owls. And um, um, we like going to Rockies games. I'll just say this was some minor league stuff. We love going to these games too. Very different experience much smaller stadium. Pitchers are throwing about 10 miles an hour at least slower than the, them and the bigs. Um, and, but I got my, the, uh, we were supposed to go, we went last night, the night before it got rained out, so they said we're gonna do a double header on you know, last night. And so between games, uh, while we were there, my son, my son hits me in points and we look 
and the players, this is a little different from Coors Field, the players who, who had just been playing in the first game had a 30-minute break or so between games, and they went over and lined up in the line to get nachos and a hot dog the same line that we were about to go get in. And so we're literally just standing there, and then a guy comes up, and we're like, you should probably go ahead of us, you know, like, I think you've got some place to be. You should probably go. I, um, I went up to the, I went, actually went up to the, the restroom and we're all waiting in line and it's one, one person at a time and so I'm standing there waiting and then the door opens and out walks one of the players. And I thought, I must be, I must be in the wrong place. Like, this is the person that we are here to see and here they are using the same bathroom, eating the same food and in a sense like, Showing, I, I, I'm one of you. Yeah, I'm the guy that's out on the field, but I'm also one of you. And I look at this, I'm preaching Christmas way too early, I understand. But I look at this and I go, that's what Christ did. He came down, he, he ate our food, he had, he had the, the, all, all the, um, everything that comes with being human, except for sin. Jesus had it. He left the glories of heaven to come to earth to demonstrate the greatness of his love for us. And then we know ultimately what he did is it didn't just stop there. It's not just the cute story about, uh, you know, about Jesus in the manger. It's not just about Jesus being born. It's not just about Christmas. It's also about Easter. That God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and he eventually wanted to demonstrate his love so much that he gave his very body for you. And he poured out his blood on the cross for you and for me to demonstrate his great love for us. Amen. And so is he a good banner that we can run to with all our insecurities and we're trying to figure out my outside's not matching the inside? He absolutely is. I don't, I don't know what else he could do to demonstrate the love that he has for you. As we take communion today, let's remember that.